Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Do you know what FERC is? Do you know who Ron Bins is? Well, you need to, and you will, after this episode of Power Hour. This week, we'll have Amy Oliver Cook from the Independent Institute talking about the agency FERC, about the nominee Ron Bins, and about what this means for America's energy future. Power Hour is coming next. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on the show is Amy Oliver Cook, Executive Vice President and Director of Energy Policy for the Independence Institute. Amy, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you for having me. It's a treat to be here. All right. Well, just to indulge myself, just before the show, we, uh, you had mentioned that CIP is a for-profit think tank, and you, and you thought that was cool. Why is that cool? I'm always getting flack for it. Well, we often just think of think tanks and somehow that uh, ivory tower, we have that ivory tower-esque type of reputation. And for me, the idea, you know, we try to promote free markets and free minds. And the fact that you have, you're using a model that is a for-profit model. First of all, you know it's unique in our world, in our think tank world. Most of us are 501c3s, which I am, and I, I love my 501c3 affiliation, but or status, I should say. But to go along sort of with what your mission is for the Center for Industrial Progress is you guys think outside the box. And so you went, you looked at, I'm assuming, I'm speculating that instead of being a nonprofit think tank, you went outside of that model and said, we're going to be for profit. We're going to make money. We're going to not just, not just promote policy that are free markets, free minds, we're actually going to walk the walk. It's just an interesting model. It's a different model, and I commend you for doing it. Uh, well, thanks. My, my, there's a lot that we know from economic theory about the value of money as a metric of measurement and the difficulty that systems have when they don't have a price system, You know, when, when it's hard to measure impact. And one thing that has just occurred to me over the years is if we look at a lot of the most influential people, whether we like them or not, such as Paul Krugman, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, these guys make a lot of money and people are willing to pay for their ideas. So at a certain point of influence, people are, are willing to pay. And, and part of the genesis behind CIP was we wanted to reach the level where, yeah, I can make a living with people paying for my speech. And then ultimately also where it's good, where our methods are good enough, where businesses will pay for them in the same way they would for any communications consultant, except in this case, they're paying for free market advice instead of appeasement advice. Well, I commend you all for doing it. It's a different business model, and it's fun that you're thinking outside the box. I mean, it's exciting in the world of think tanks that somebody is looking at alternate, you know, alternative models that that possibly could work. 
And obviously for you, not just possibly, does work. Yes. Well, we're about to go from the wonderful world of profit making to the not wonderful world of government regulation making. Uh, at least the first big subject we're going to talk about today is the uh, potential head of the Federal Electricity Regulatory Commission, FERC, and this is Ron Bins. Uh, Amy, recently you've been writing about Ron Bins. Uh, what should we know about this potential appointment and this person? I have been following Ron Bins for several years now. He was the chair of the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. What you need to know about Ron Bins, the elevator pitch is that he's an activist. He's not a neutral regulator. He's not interested in just simply looking at an issue and being an objective arbiter of what is fair for ratepayers, what is fair for a state-sanctioned monopoly such as a utility. He is an activist. He has a political agenda, and it's an agenda that is dangerous for consumers. He is not interested or less concerned with the cost of electricity and much more concerned with changing sources of electricity. This is a guy who is opposed to 90% of what powers our electric grid. He was instrumental in shutting down the only nuclear power plant in Colorado, St. Vrain Nuclear Power Plant. He instrumental in the war on coal, and in fact, not only did he is he in, is he a general in the war on coal? He actually helped craft and negotiate cost recovery language for the large the state's largest investor owned utility to switch from coal to natural gas. You think, well, that's just that's just being a good regulator. No, this is flat out collusion because this is a guy who was then sitting in judgment of the very utility and the bill that he helped craft and then negotiate the cost recovery language with that very utility. By the way, ratepayers weren't at the table for, for any of those email threads. They weren't invited to participate. And then now he's calling natural gas, he's calling it a dead-end technology. This is a guy who is a, a he is a, corporate welfare king for big wind and solar, and he's less interested about the cost of electricity to consumers. And in fact, one more thing, and I don't mean to go on too long, but you ought to know that when Ron Bins became chairman of Colorado's Public Utilities Commission, which was, I think, in 2007, right after then-Governor Bill Ritter had been elected to office, and Governor Ritter came in on a wave of the new energy economy, and he appointed Ron Bins, really an activist, to be this neutral regulator, or supposedly neutral regulator. They changed the mission statement of Colorado's Public Utilities Commission. Prior to Ron Bins' tenure at the PUC, the mission statement of the, uh, of the PUC was affordable, reliable, abundant energy. After Ron Bins, it was changed to reasonably priced, consistent with the social, 
economic and environmental values of the state of Colorado. So it went from being affordable, reliable, and abundant to being really a, a, a political, it was politicized, absolutely politicized. Once Ron Benz became chair of the PUC, and of course that was because he was appointed by then Governor Bill Ritter. I want to drill in, into several of those. Let's let's start with the significance of the position, because you're you're uh, pointing out here that he has positions that uh, amount to opposition to essentially every practical means of generating uh, electricity. As the head of FERC, what what power would he have that we should be concerned about? Well, this is a guy who would be in charge of licensing. So. If you think it was, it was really interesting, I was at a, I was at a round table. We were talking about various forms of power, and and somebody said, well, you know, there have been huge advancements in nuclear power, and there have been. And if you truly believe that carbon emissions are the harbinger of doom, then you should be all in on nuclear power. Now, Ron Benz likes to talk a good game about carbon emissions, but in reality, I think he, it really is just sort of, it's the veneer that he, that he uses in order to advance wind energy because he was instrumental in shutting down Colorado's only nuclear power plant. But he would be in charge. I mean, he, he's the guy who, who would have authority over licensing for new power plants. Let me tell you, there won't be a new power plant if Ron Binns is sitting at the helm. I doubt you'll get a new coal fire plant, and it's even going to be tough to get a natural gas-fired plant because he thinks of that as a dead-end technology. This is a guy who, who champions, champions that 80% of the nation's electricity could be powered by renewable sources by, I think he said, I, you know, may have been 2050. That's the direction he's moving into energy sources that are not affordable. They're not reliable. They are unpredictable. And they actually cause, uh, they'll actually cause degradation. It will, the grid itself can degrade if we have too much wind in particular on it because it's it's so unpredictable and it's it's so inflexible um so i mean uh, to say the least ron bins is not some new energy inventor who has come up with a way of actually generating energy from the so-called renewables which i call unreliables uh but he is in a position to destroy practical sources of energy just want to make that clear to everyone that it's when people talk about oh 80 can be done that's a fantasy. The reality is the destruction uh, right. that they can do. Right. And, and that's, it's not possible. I mean, the physics aren't there. And, and as I told you, I don't have a background in, in science in the sense of I haven't studied this at the Colorado School of Mines. I just know the policy side of it. And I have watched Ron Benz. And this is a guy who who honestly believes you're right. Let me tell you, 80% of the nation's electric grid somehow being powered by wind, I can tell you this much, it won't be a grid that we recognize. 
because it won't be affordable, reliable, abundant energy on demand. There is no way that if you force 80% of the nation's electricity into wind or solar or whatever biofuel that Ron Bins now dreams up or fantasizes about, there is no way it can power on any kind of a consistent level 80% of the nation's grid. In fact, you're going to be challenged at 20 to 30%. The state of California, which has a 33% renewable mandate, just I think it was last last year they they brought together their regulators and utility companies because they're looking at rolling brownouts because they know that as they continue to layer on more wind, which is as you said, you know, unreliable, as they layer on more, they can't meet the demands. They can't meet that electricity on demand. It's just not possible. Well, and, and I mean, to look at it uh, from from the flip side as well, or, or just from a different angle, in electricity and, and energy, we seem to, there seems to be this idea of, can we find some way possible to make the worst technologies work? And let's try it and hope for the best. But that's not the approach we take in any other market. In any market, we say, let the best man win, let the best technology uh, win. So it's not our obligation to point out that, exactly how destructive it would be to do these obviously be massively destructive but uh we should be free to use use the best and it's interesting that bins is openly against all of the best and i want to start out with why is he against nuclear because as you mentioned if you actually believed that moving the amount of co2 in the atmosphere from 0.03 percent to 0.04 percent uh was going to bring about an apocalypse you would be as diehard a supporter of nuclear power as i am at least uh, but he's against it. What what reasons does he give? How does he how does he uh, how does he connect those two positions? Boy, there's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for you. I do know from people who were involved with the Saint Vrain nuclear power plant, which, by the way, did have some some troubles with the technology. It was. It, it did not work as it had originally planned. But rather than allowing the Public Utility Commission to improve it, as head of what was then called, well, it's still the, the Office of Consumer Counsel, Ron Bins, according to those inside and, and working with the public utility, it, it was public service at the time, he said it was his whole mission was to regulate them to death. But we find this a lot with people who are wind and solar energy zealots in that, you know, CO2 is a good argument in one case, but they don't necessarily use it in another. They will say, well, nuclear energy is too expensive. Well, it's too expensive because oftentimes because they regulate it to death and drive up the price so much, even though there has not been a single death, certainly not in the United States, from nuclear power. And it is it is has the smallest surface footprint of any electricity source. So if you want to generate power with a small surface footprint and zero, zero carbon emissions, 
you should be all in for nuclear. But the other one that we have opposition to, for instance, in the state of Colorado, Ron Bins recently testified on a bill in Colorado that, that doubled the renewable mandate for rural electric co-ops. The interesting thing about that is it doesn't include most of the hydroelectric that these rural electric co-ops buy from WAPA, which is the Western Area Power Authority. And they don't include that, even though the Center for American Progress, our own governor's energy office, and the EPA consider hydroelectric to be a, a source, you know, a carbon-emitting source on the same level as wind. So they exclude hydro and they exclude nuclear. The only thing I can think of, the only reason why, is that somehow, some way, Ron Bins has some kind of fatal attraction to wind and solar, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, my take is the opposite, is that he has a... a you know, a fatal death wish for any source of energy that actually works. <laughs> that could be that could be the that could be the case as well. I'll give you that one. Well, there's no. I mean, or it could be both in the sense of. I mean, the, the nuclear thing and hydro thing is such a giveaway. You can't say something is the you know the problem of our time and then and then be against the two most obvious uh, solutions to it. But there there is an element I think where if, if we look at what their basic philosophy is that we shouldn't impact the rest of nature and that that it's somehow wrong for us to to transform the earth uh solar and wind in if you don't understand them at all at least seem to meet this bill because we're somehow taking in energy from the sun and the wind and that's somehow natural uh of course it involves massive amounts of mining and development like any other energy technology and in fact involves much more because it's so inefficient unless you need to do a lot more development a lot more mining uh but it's it's only in that level but what that means is as soon as people actually see what it looks like, they'll say, oh, we shouldn't do it because it kills birds or, oh, we shouldn't do it because it it's invading this desert habitat or it uses a lot of water. So they, they really never met a form of development that they liked. No, and the other thing with, for instance, wind and solar, the mining, you, you talked about just sort of the manufacturing process. Now, if you choose to use wind and solar, I don't really care. It makes no difference to me if that's what you as I, I mean I we're agnostic on energy sources we believe in affordable reliable abundant sort of a least cost principle but when you take into the total calculate all the calculations whether they're economic or environmental wind and solar make almost the least amount of sense because in environmentally when you look at what we have to do to mine for the rare earth elements to actually manufacture these turbines and the solar panels. All you have to do is look at, at photographs from China. They call them cancer villages. These are places where they mine the rare earth elements, and they don't have quite the environmental regulations we do here. They just dump all of this toxic material whether it's into a lake, a river, or on the ground. And we, by the way, don't even, we, we can't even mine them here. China controls 95% of the nation's rare earth elements, the, the manufacturing of them. We have them, but we don't mine them. 
So the other the other fallacy they love to say this too. First of all, they love to say wind and solar is free. Well, the wind does blow and the sun does shine, but it fails to take into account how much it costs to manufacture these things. Again, both economically and environmentally, and they also fail to calculate the transmission. You can't put a wind farm right in the middle of downtown Denver. So you put it out in Lyman or you put it up the area where I'm from, which is northeastern Colorado in Weld County where the wind blows all the time. But that's a long way away from your population population center. So you have to those transmission lines have to travel an even greater distance and you lose some of your electricity with every single inch of transmission line that it must cover. So they're just inefficient. And I also happen to have a very good friend who's a state lawmaker who decided he was going to go completely off the grid. Wasn't interested in being on the grid. And he has his own wind turbine and he has his own solar panels. And by the way, he has a fossil fuel backup generator because he knows that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but his family always needs power, some kind of power. And this is what he said. He said, when you come to my house, expect to go on an energy diet, number one. And number two, he said this, it's very expensive to do this. And it takes a very long time for it to pay off. Because personally for me, that was for him, State Senator Kevin Lundberg, well worth the payoff. He likes it. He also likes technology. He likes playing with all that kind of stuff. He said, but I would never advocate it on a major scale because it's not efficient, it's not affordable, and it's not reliable. Has he written about that at all? It would be interesting to, if there are any references for that. Um, he hasn't written about it, but I will say this. He talks about it all the time, and he's happy to talk about it. As you noted um, when we were talking before we went on the air, is that I do talk radio, and he has been on my show a number of times talking about this very thing. It was just a decision he made for his family. He's glad he could make that decision, and certainly anybody else who wants to make that decision, more power to them. But he also knows that on a grand scale, it doesn't work. He is a fascinating interview on personal choices when it comes to electricity. All right. Well, we'll write down his info. Um, just, just a quick comment on this issue of, of free. It's, it's uh, such an offensive idea that energy is free. I mean, if energy were free, then the Industrial Revolution would have happened a hell of a lot longer than 300 years ago. I mean, energy is, it takes a lot of effort to produce. It takes a lot of thought. And to say the sun is free is like the equivalent of saying, well, oxygen is free. The oxygen that combusts when I burn a fuel, that's free. So, so you know, hydrocarbon energy is free. Or even the ground doesn't charge me. Does the ground charge me for oil? No. So it's, I mean, it's just all of these things require first and foremost, human time and human effort, which is irreplaceable. And so it is an enormous, nothing could be more expensive than using inefficient technologies. Nothing could be a bigger waste of uh, of life and, and nothing could be a bigger uh, threat to life. So I'm curious with Bins, has he, does he have any affiliations or, or um, stated history with what we can call the environmentalist fundamentalist groups like Greenpeace, Sierra Club, uh, NRDC, because his positions very much mirror theirs in terms of this all of the above opposition. He 
has been known to correspond with certainly the environmental left. And when we were doing some research on a paper that we worked on, I collaborate with William Yateman of the Competitive Enterprise Institute this on, on this fuel switching bill that Ron Bins helped craft and then negotiated the cost recovery language with Excel Energy, the one I alluded to earlier, there is a whole series of emails, and there are just, I mean, thousands of, of pages of documents there. And in those emails, you have Ron Benz, chairman of the PUC, of Excel Energy, governors, the, the governor's office, some natural gas guys, and the Environmental Defense Fund. And there's another one here in Colorado. There, there, Environment Colorado, Colorado League of Conservation Voters. I mean, some of some of those groups, but many of those environmentalists, but Environmental Defense Fund, and 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 I'm doing this just because I I don't have the emails pulled up, but some of the those that uh, those common names from the eco left whether at a national level or some of our state state groups were involved or part of that email thread that was crafting the language of House Bill 1365 which then became the fuel switching bill they call it clean air clean jobs and certainly it is neither one of those it's mandated fuel switching that Ron Benz championed. And so, yes, he, he, I don't know that he has been, you know, set, he's been on any of their boards, but he certainly has conversations with them. He was with the Office of Consumer Counsel first, and then he did some, he did some private work in, in, the private sector, and in fact, he wrote a paper that ended up being the foundation of what became Colorado's constitutional amendment, Amendment 37, which mandated that 10% of the electricity generated from or by investor-owned utilities, mostly XL Energy and Black Hills, which is in the southern part of the state, but XL Energy primarily that 10% come from renewable sources, mostly wind and solar, and he wrote this paper. And so he's been sort of the go-to guy on renewable energy. What is funny about that is that at the time, and this was 2003, 2004, nobody challenged him on any of his modeling or any of his numbers, which were something like, you know, the 10% of our electricity generated from renewable sources, even on the high end, if, if prices got really out of control, it might cost the average rate payer, you know, 50 cents a month on their electric bill. Well, of course, that has turned out to be wrong on every single level. Ron Benz's idea of, of energy production has been wildly expensive for Colorado ratepayers. 
Yet he still, he, he goes out and he says, you know, it doesn't really cost all that much more. Or, no, or actually now it's more like we shouldn't be concerned about cost. I mean, that's literally what he said. You sh- we shouldn't be looking so much at cost. We should be looking at output. Well, you know what? If I'm a single mom or if I'm a low-income Coloradan, in, or at this point maybe a low-income uh, American at this if he gets nominated and then ultimately confirmed to head up FERC, I am concerned about the cost. I mean, that's great if Ron Bins can afford it, but what about the rest of us? Energy rates in Colorado have gone up dramatically. They've actually skyrocketed. We used to have some of the lowest rates in the Rocky Mountain region, and now we have higher electric rates than any of our neighboring states, and we're second highest in the Rocky Mountain West, and those Prices are only going to continue to go up because of the policies that Ron Benz championed as head of Colorado's PUC when he was simply supposed to be a a regulator, a neutral regulator, and instead he is an activist. He's not a regulator. He's an activist, and it's dangerous to put him at the helm of FERC. That that kind of mentality of you shouldn't be too concerned about cost i mean what if what if someone said that to you of every every aspect of your life so okay your cost is going to go up by 20% every single thing you know your your clothes driving your car running your washing machine but that's of course what it means if your energy goes up because energy is the fundamental industry that powers all the others so cost and energy get get passed on so the idea that this person is indifferent to it and that as you mentioned earlier he switched the whole colorado philosophy from abundant, affordable, reliable, or something like that, to this mishmash of environmental buzzwords that uh, mean not reliable or affordable, that's really ominous. There are two things, too, that, that I want to, two points that I want to make. One is that Ron Bins is also a huge demand-side management guy. This is a guy who, for whom cost, you know, he's not concerned about the cost because, frankly, he doesn't want you using it anyway. Now, I don't know if that's a, a, a personal power trip on his own part, but he's, he has some kind of drive in him where he wants people to use less energy, and this is a way for him to do it. The other thing is on the cost of electricity in Colorado, what is so ironic about all of this is that NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which does modeling for global warming, and it was that they were getting ready to build a supercomputer that would just gobble up tons of electricity. And they do modeling for global warming and climate change or whatever we call it now. Um, that NCAR actually moved its supercomputer. It was well. I, I, it never even brought this big, huge, brand new supercomputer into Boulder. It decided, nope, electricity is too expensive here, and they put it in Wyoming because, as they cited in, as was cited in a newspaper article, the Denver Post, they said, you know, the cost of electricity is cheaper in Wyoming, so we're going to move this very electricity-intensive computer, the supercomputer, which models for climate change and global warming, up to Wyoming because it'll be less expensive for us to run it there than it will be for us to run it in Colorado. 
Yeah. So one one more question about him. How is why did Obama decide to nominate him? Because Obama seems to be straddling straddling this line of well, war on fossil fuels, but also fossil fuels are the only thing not for the only reason the economy isn't completely in the tank. And so he's at times supported fracking and uh, certain other practical energy technologies. Why do you think he picked bins at, at this moment, given that bins is, is against everything? <laughs> you know, actually, that's a really good question. And at first, those of us here in Colorado thought we were going to have to apologize to the rest of the country this was a little while ago when Stephen Chu said he wasn't going to serve a second term as energy secretary. We were all afraid it was going to be Bill Ritter, former Governor Bill Ritter, who ushered in the era of the new energy economy, wind and solar, not interested in fossil fuels, really particularly don't like coal. And, of course, as I said earlier, Governor Ritter is the one who appointed Ron Binns. So we thought that the nation had, had sort of dodged a bullet there, a, a proverbial bullet, in the sense that, okay, well, Colorado's still stuck with Bill Ritter, but better to have him here than at, as head of the Department of Energy. So when Ron Bins, who, by the way, there, there is a little cloud over his what was supposed to be his second term as chair of the Colorado PUC, did he resign or did he just say not seek a second term, say he's not really seeking another term? Or was it that he was told, listen, you're not going to be reappointed because, frankly, they're, you know, you're, you're a little bit toxic yourself. He was found to have violated some ethical standards in the state of Colorado. They never really penalized him because he said he didn't, because they, the ethics commission said he didn't have a lot of personal gain from it. But yeah, he probably violated some, some standards. He also, as head of the PUC, when he was, or chair of the PUC, spent an, an extraordinary amount of time traveling the globe. He didn't spend as much time in the office. And in fact, people inside the PUC staffers will tell you, you know, sometimes it's kind of difficult to even schedule staff meetings or, or talk with them or, or any kind of briefing for him because the guy was gone all the time. And I think when we, when all of a sudden done for he was gone for one week out of every every four. He he was gone. He was completely either out of the out of the office, out of the out of the state, out of the country. So he traveled a lot, and so we were surprised because there was this sort of cloud of suspicion. And then uh, uh, let me add to that: the PU, the state auditor did an audit of the PUC during for when it was after Ben's left, but. It was an audit for the time that he was there, and it was blistering. There was mismanagement, all of these travel requests that never were properly vetted. There was no, nobody was really signing off on anything. I mean, mismanagement was ripe in the PUC during Ron Benz's ten, tenure there. So the question becomes, you're right, so why, would, why did Obama appoint him? 
And that's a very good question. And what I have heard from my sources is that Ron, be- Ron Bins became very chummy with the former head of FERC and is even better friends with Harry Reid. Now, why Harry Reid should have that kind of power over the head of FERC, I don't know. But not only that, but Ron Bins isn't even appointed to be one of the, I think they have commissioners, and he's not even a commissioner within FERC, which is apparently what they normally do is they take a former commissioner and bump him up to executive director or, or chair of, of, of FERC. They didn't even do that. They just plucked Ron Bins and said, here you go. And I think another thing is, the environmental left desperately wants Ron Bins there because Ron Bins can do for them at the national level what he did for the environmental left in the state of Colorado. That's why Venn Squared PR firm hired to promote Ron Bins. So think about this. The, the day that Ron Bins gets nominated, a PR firm that represents rent seekers, renewable rent seekers, that very day, they're pumping out a press release saying how wonderful Ron Bins is. And that's the day he gets nominated. So to me, this was, this is a giveaway to the environmental left. But there's one, one thing that I, I, I tell my conservative friends you know, the, the whole wind solar is predominantly a movement of the environmental left. But make no mistake, there are, there are Republicans that are heavily invested in wind energy. And they love the idea of the 40% production tax credit. They're not, they're not foolish. They know how to make money especially when the government is giving it away. So this, while it is the environmental left, and I love telling this because when, especially when you talk to treat these true wind believers, it's like you, because they, they love to think it's just the Democrats that are pushing wind and solar, but there are some Republicans for whom there are big donors that are heavily invested in wind and I don't know so much about solar, but heavily invested in some of these these wind farms. And they certainly like to keep the production tax credits, and they would love nothing more than to see Ron Bins as the head of FERC because that means an expansion of the wind energy in which they have invested. Uh, you mentioned a little while back that your policy at Independence Institute was, I forget exactly how you put it, but essentially it amounted to free market. That is, you're, you're neutral about the energy source, and it's a matter of actually providing the best kind of energy, which is predominantly the cheapest uh, kind of energy. And I think it's that's an important contrast to what we see from Democrats, but also what we see from Republicans. And one recent example I saw of this was uh, in West Virginia and other places, they just have ins- absolutely insane wealth transfers for people who buy electric cars in order to support their, you know, because they think it will contribute to their own 
local coal industry. And while we should definitely be free to produce coal power, and people like Bins are, are definitely, I would say, villains for, for opposing it, uh, it's definitely the wrong approach to favor a particular type of power. So I'm glad that, that your organization is, is doing the opposite. Absolutely. And I'll give you a prime example. In Colorado, I talked to you about, to you about the, the fuel switching bill, which was from coal to natural gas. It was the reti- early retirement of perfectly good coal-fired power plants and switching them over. To, it, switching, I think it was 950 megawatts of power. These coal-fired power plants, not yet ready for to be mothballed, but instead early retirement, forcing them in to be natural gas-fired plants. Now, the natural gas industry in Colorado, some of them, not all of them, some of the bigger players loved that idea because they wanted the corner on on the natural gas market. Smaller producers, not so much because they knew they weren't going to get any. Well, there were Republicans who voted for that bill. I mean, it was a a Democrat-dominated legislature. They were in control of both houses, and they were in control of the governor's mansion. But there were Republicans who supported that bill, and it's, it was a giveaway to the natural gas industry. The natural gas industry doesn't need subsidies or, or government favors or anything else any more than any other source. But that was a giveaway, and there were Republicans that, that supported that. So it's on both sides of the aisle. But right now what we see with wind and solar, it is heavily an environmental left movement predominantly but there are some republicans who champion it as well so it 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 is on both sides of the aisle you see giveaways to the energy industry and frankly the and somebody said to me well you know because i live in a county that has twenty thousand natural gas wells and friend of one of my legislators said i was just trying to protect your county and I said, well, maybe I happen to have a little bit higher standard, or actually I happen to believe that a little bit, have a little bit more faith in the oil and gas industry because I happen to think they can just compete on their own. They don't need the state legislature mandating that XL Energy switch its energy source from coal to natural gas. But, you, you know, it happens on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine when people will say something like, hey, look, the BTU, you know, the per unit of energy cost of natural gas at this moment in time is less than coal. Therefore, let's destroy a functioning coal plant and build a whole new plant. As if, I mean, it just why don't you just do that with your house? If someone just says, well, if you can get a 10 cent you know, lower electricity bill, why not just demolish your house and build a new one? If you're promised that, well, because it costs money to build a house. Oh yeah, I forgot. There's a cost of <laughs> I know. It it and I will say this, there were some things that gave coal an advantage over natural gas and part of that goes back to when they believed that natural gas was more of a boutique fuel and that was really before hydraulic fracturing and these sort of new technological developments that allowed for greater recovery of natural gas deposits. So I understand in that sense where 
the natural gas industry was coming from because coal could enter into long-term contracts and natural gas had difficulty doing that. I get that part of it. And, and if you wanted to fix that part, that's fine. But this we're using, not only are we going to fix long-term contracts, but now we're going to force coal out and natural gas in. It was a, a step way too far. And, and government, it is not their role to decide what the fuel source should be for a power plant. And it goes back, I mean, I loved your analogy about you know, talking about if it were free, you know, the Industrial Revolution would be would have been over years ago. Well, and, and if wind and solar were free, then Haiti would be, would, would have the highest per capita income because that's about the only power source they have. <laughs> and frankly, they don't. So, yeah. uh, one one final issue. What do you think is gonna? What's your read on on Keystone XL? Because we have this this president who is has generally very bad ideas about energy, but is occasionally forced to recognize that oil and gas are wildly superior to his uh, pet projects. What do you think is going to happen with Keystone XL? Well, that's a, another good question, and. I wish I had a crystal ball. I will say this. If Ron Bins is at, at the head of FERC and has anybody's ear, he will do everything in his power to shut it down. I, I mean, Ron Bins being there. And, and the funny thing is, if you look at Ron Bins and you hear him and you he, he's a nice, he, he, he comes across as this very nice, benign sort of regulator but mark my words, if he is at the head of FERC and he has anybody's ear in Washington, and he will as the head of FERC, he will not, he will not approve that. He, he will make sure that it is either impossible to get any kind of permitting for it or will make it incredibly difficult. That's why I think as head of FERC, he is dangerous. All right. Not just for being the transmission, but all of that. All right. So, listeners, I think I think at least the people on the line agree. Uh, do not support Ron Ben. Um. So, any any final thoughts on American energy policy before we wrap up? Well, I will say this. Here is hoping those of us in the state of Colorado who have watched our electric rates skyrocket. First of all, let me apologize in advance that we didn't stop it. We, I, we didn't do enough in time to, to stop the advancement. And now they want to take what happened in Colorado and make it the model for the rest of the country. And Ron Binns has even said that. And that is a that is very dangerous. That is very dangerous. It's not about it's not about carbon emissions. I, personally, I think it's about just controlling individual energy use. And I I can't get inside Ron Bin's head. I don't know what it is that drives him, but this is not a man who is interested in affordable, reliable electric rates. So uh, for the rest of the country. Here's hoping that you don't have to endure Colorado's disastrous energy policy. 
Well, that's that's not as much consolation here in California because we have to endure <laughs> California's energy policy. But but certainly, uh, for others, it it would be. Uh, Amy, where can we find out more about you on the internet? Please go to energy.i2i.org. That's energy.i2i.org. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being on the program. Hey, and I'm a big fan, so thank you for having me. It's a treat to be on on this side of the podcast. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again to Amy Oliver-Cook for coming on the show. Well, we have a lot of news at CIP, so I'll I'll wrap up today with this. As I'm uh, speaking right now, it's Thursday night. Show will be coming out on Friday. Uh, this morning, I just got a a note or a notice from Rolling Stone. I shouldn't say they notified me, but someone else notified me that I was on their list of I guess the top ten. What do they, what do they call it? Global warming deniers. Uh, which is not supposed to be an honor at all, and that is definitely a smear term. Uh, but it was it was pretty neat to be on a list with the Koch brothers, who are demonized for refining oil and promoting liberty, both things uh, I approve of, and also Rex Tillerson, the CEO uh, of ExxonMobil, among uh, many other uh, prominent people. And they, they got my bio right uh, as well, or at least they said accurate things. Of course, this prevented them from explaining how I deny global warming, so to speak, because I affirm it insofar as it means that the planet is on average getting warmer and that human beings have some contribution to that. Um, but anyway, it was that was interesting. You can, that's kind of a, the buzz on Facebook. If you got if you go to facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy or facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. Uh, I wrote a Forbes column about that issue, so that'll be coming out in the next couple of days. Uh, fingers crossed it might be on TV this weekend. Uh, I'll tell you about that next week, or you can always go on the blog, industrialprogress.com. And uh, I think I say this usually, but make sure to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, the newsletter will always have all the news, including news about this show, but also anything that I forget to mention in, in this uh, segment. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.